Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Now, what is our subject? For the next few weeks, we're going to look at two methods of making decisions. One is pragmatism and one is biblical obedience. And I want you to get it fixed in your minds, the difference between being pragmatic in your decisions and being obedient to God in your decisions. But I'm not just going to say, you know, mystical spiritual obedience to God. Biblical obedience. In other words, I don't want you to go off into the desert and, you know, climb up on top of a column and sit alone for 30 days, right, without eating, and then see what vibes come to you. Biblical obedience. I want you to expect that God is going to lead you through his word, okay? And so our text is this, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, and this is God's word, and it's eternally true. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I was reading a book called The Origin of Paul's Religion. It was written by a man who uh, had grown up in a sort of aristocratic family in Baltimore on the East Coast. And this man went to college, and then he decided to do uh, graduate work over in Germany in Scripture and in New Testament. He almost fell into liberalism while he was under higher criticism in Germany. But he had a godly mother, and he would correspond with his mother. Well, this man ended up being solidified in his faith in Scripture. It really was, as so often, the battle was over the Bible. He came back, he ended up getting his doctorate, and he he was a professor at Princeton. And he was in a denomination that uh, had become liberal. And the denomination had a bunch of missionaries, and specifically missionaries in China, who no longer believed in miracles, no longer believed in the virgin birth, no longer believed in uh, scripture. One of them was uh, somebody that maybe you've read the book I've read. Uh, The book is The Good Earth, and it's written by Pearl Buck. She was one of those missionaries. And so his denomination had a denominational mission that was just filled with people who no longer feared God. And so they would try to make common cause with whatever people group they were among. And, you know, well, God is, you know, Confucius and, and Islam is God. And, and, and they just try to muddy everything up, you know. And this man had been through the ringer under German higher criticism. And so he had perceptions. He had discernment, discrimination. He could hear the paganism in it. And he saw all these churches and all the sheep that belonged to God's flock giving all their money to the denominational mission to support 
men and women who were destroying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he stood up. He was, he was a professor at Princeton. And he stood up. We don't have anybody like this at Covenant. Not one. But this man was at Princeton, which of course makes Covenant look like a, a, a preschool. I mean, honestly. And he stood up at Princeton and he said no. And he started a, uh, a foreign mission society that would be the gospel. And do you know what those cowards at Princeton and in his denomination did to him? They defrocked him. They took away his ordination. He was excommunicated. His name was J. Gresham Machen, M-A-C-H-E-N. And he wrote a book because everybody said that Paul was a nasty dude, but Jesus was loving. You know? And so he wrote a book called The Origin, The Beginning, The Root of Paul's Religion. And it's a book that says Paul's just Jesus. That there's no dissimilarity, no conflict between what Jesus taught and what Paul taught. Now, I want to read to you a sentence that I read in that book that I've never forgotten. J. Gresham Machen writes, It never occurred to Paul to hold principle in abeyance, even for the welfare of the souls of men. The deadening blight of pragmatism had never fallen upon his soul. I'll read it again. It never occurred to Paul to hold principle in abeyance. You know what in abeyance means? It never occurred to him to shove it back into the box and, and, and then fold the box lids. To hold it in abeyance, to put it, to relegate it. It never occurred to Paul to hold principle truth in abeyance, to shove it down so that what? So that the souls of men would be saved for the welfare of the souls of men. He did not see that the welfare of souls of men required us to relegate principle. And you look today at hipster church planners, and they never start, stop relegating principle for the sake of souls of men. And they're so stupid and unfaithful and evil. But they're so stupid because nobody ever became a Christian because somebody was very sophisticated in their relegation of principle, in holding principle in abeyance. I mean, is that what Jesus said? And then Jesus came and Jesus began to preach. And he preached in a way that, that held principle in abeyance for the sake of souls of men. This is ridiculous. And then he says this, the deadening blight of pragmatism. In other words, the mortal stage four cancer of pragmatism had never fallen upon his soul. So this means pragmatism is some bad karma, right? He calls it a deadening blight. It must be really nasty. So what is pragmatism? Well, Webster's defines pragmatism as the principle that truth is to be tested, first of all, by its practical consequences. 
So truth, the way you know it, is you look at what happens. So it's practical consequences. That's how you know whether something is true. We don't ask often enough what the Bible says about things because we're very confident in our ability to test truth by its consequences. So we think if we can extrapolate from the present into the future based on which truth we act on, that that's the best way of knowing what truth is. I see this all the time in elders' meetings where you'll, ha- you'll be having a discussion and somebody will have just taken an ax to an 80-year-old grandmother in front of the congregation during morning worship. A teenage boy hacking her to smithereens in front of the whole congregation on Sunday morning. And the decision will be, should we discipline him? And the answer will be, well, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, this. And, but on the one hand, this, but on the other hand, this. In other words, we will try to extrapolate into the future the consequences of disciplining a man that hacked an 80-year-old grandmother to smithereens in front of the church during worship. Now you say, oh, come on, that never happened. You're right, it never happened. Okay? But I mean adultery, sodomy, greed, lying, schism. And what we do in those meetings is we say, well, how many people will be mad if we do this? And how many people who aren't mad if we do this will be mad if we do this? And so, of course, the reason we've never had a case where a teenage boy would hack an 80-year-old grandmother to pieces during worship on Sunday morning, the, the, the reason we've never had a case like that is because everybody knows that there would be nobody opposed to his discipline, right? And so, no, we have never argued over that. And, and no boy does it because he knows that he'd just get dealt with immediately before he even swung the axe. And yet so many sins, so many things that are clear, we muddy them up as we try to extrapolate into the future what the consequences of obeying God will be, of trusting God will be. And you look at your marriage and your life and your home, you look at your own personal decision-making, and you'll see you don't even have an expectation that God is going to show you what you should do. You just automatically proceed under the expectation that if you can just extrapolate into the future the consequences of acting on this truth, that good will flow. And so that's pragmatism. Pragmatism is making a decision which direction you're going to go, which direction you're going to lead your family, which direction you're going to lead the church based on what you expect to happen. And that is a deadening blight. And I want to spend a few weeks talking about this because I think it is almost the main method of the church living today is by pragmatism. A number of years ago, a young mother came to me and she hadn't been in the church long and she sat down and she said, Tim, I want to ask you a question. Should I stop wearing jewelry? And I said, why? And she said, well, in 1 Peter 3, it says this, your adornment must not be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. 
And nobody had ever asked me that question. On the one hand, it is the Bible. But on the other hand, it would make us Amish. And you know, when you have to choose between the Bible and Amish... Listen, I don't have much question that when I answered that question, I hurt that woman. Because I'm sure what I did was explain to her why it's not good for the witness of Jesus Christ for a church to be Amish. Right? I didn't talk about the although our area had more Amish than here. But I think what I explained to her was that you shouldn't just take Scripture at its word. That you need to be, you know, that word that is, you know, that word that, I mean, when, 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 when PhDs use it, it's almost like you can see them getting the sweet from a lollipop. You know, they say, nuance. There has to be some nuance, right? And I'm sure I showed her my ability with nuance, because after all, I'd studied under PhDs. You know? Well, I mean, honestly, don't be so literal in your interpretation of Scripture. I mean, honestly, you're not being extravagant. It is interesting that the text actually says this. Should not be external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. I don't remember, but I wouldn't be surprised if I said, well, you're going to take off your dress? You know, because that's kind of, it gets them back on their heels, you know. (laughs) Well, no. Well, then why would you take off your jewelry? Ergo, hawk, post hawk, you know. (laughs) I'm sure that I undercut her confidence in the perspicuity of Scripture, which is the doctrine that most of Scripture is able to be understood without a doctoral degree. I mean, that's not what they said, but that's basically what it means. You shouldn't have to have, you know, professors at the Vatican telling you what Scripture means. You should be able to open it up and read it, and most of it you should be able to understand. I'm sure when she got done, she realized that Scripture was more nuanced than she thought it was. And I'm sure from that day to this, she's worn jewelry. Okay, so now what am I saying? Am I saying that it's right or wrong for her to wear jewelry? This is what I'm saying. Every single one of those questions is a question asking whether you should obey God. And actually, Scripture is much clearer than we want to give it credit for being. And what we do is we don't ask, what does the Bible say about anything? What we say is, what do other people do? And how far can I depart from what other churches in Bloomington do before I'm called Amish? And how about if I stop just short of the Amish, but enough to define myself as different from the other churches, you see? And we're not asking, what does the Bible say? Do any Christians care what the Bible says anymore? I mean, honestly, do you care? Or do you just want to do what makes you fit in, but be sort of spiritual as you fit in? Or sort of Christian spirit, or sort of 
reform Christian spiritual as you fit in? I mean, what is your standard for making decisions in your life about things like jewelry, about dresses, about braiding of hair? Now, let me, let me bring up two things that, um, that I think are a good illustration of this. So recently, I've begun to put out tweets having to do with cremation. I did it a little bit a couple years ago, but then all my loved ones were getting cremated. And I just couldn't bear talking about cremation when all my loved ones were getting cremated, okay? But I kept reading the Bible, and the Bible's witness was clear that it was horrible to be burned, to be reduced to lime, and that it was an act of love to take Jesus' body into your grave and roll a stone, Joseph of Arimathea. And it was an act of love for Mary Magdalene to come to the grave to anoint the body. In other words, that you can't separate Jesus' body from Jesus. And so people have always loved bodies. And Scripture is from cover to cover filled with this. But I kept seeing more and more Christians burning and smashing and bashing the body of their loved ones. And the loved ones wanted it done to them, you know. And so on the one hand, you had Scripture's witness, which is uniform on this issue. It doesn't have any statement saying, thou shalt not cremate, right? But on the other hand, my loved ones and you. And this is a pastor's job. He has to... He has to decide whether to trust in the Lord with all his heart and lean not on his own understanding and all his ways acknowledge him and he will direct his paths. Whether he should be wise in his own eyes or whether he should fear God. And so I just shut my mouth for a couple of years, you know. Went to the funerals. Similar thing happened when it came to reading the Bible on the issue of birth control. I read the Bible, and from cover to cover, the Bible is universally positive about fruitfulness in Scripture. It's positive about the fruitfulness of the marriage bed and the love of a man and a woman, a husband and wife. It's positive about apple trees. It's positive about grain. It's positive about the rain that falls on the earth. It's positive about cows and sheep. It's universally positive that God blesses those who serve him by making them, their cows, you know, the rain, everything fruitful. But of course, you know, all of us use birth control. You know, So on the one hand, there's God and his word, and on the other hand, there's me and you. And so, you know, you want to, you I mean, honestly, if we begin to treat fruitfulness as a blessing from God, I mean, just think of the havoc that will be wreaked. You know, all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're making a decision to be poor, and God doesn't want us to be poor. And some of us may not finish our graduate degrees, and God puts education above cleanliness. <laughs> At least among us reform people. And so cremation and fruitfulness of the marriage bed, I'm in play, and I'm a pastor. You see this? Because the uniform witness of the church on both is clear. 
All through church history on both issues, it's been clear. And all through scripture, it's clear. But people move and change. And and the Bible's old, and it was written in an ancient culture. And by the way, that word ancient is pejorative. Okay? It's actually not a compliment. (laughs) Come on, laugh. Thank you. Who was that? (laughs) Thank you, Gandalf. Why does the Bible command us to trust in the Lord with all our heart? The reason is that our hearts are always going to want to trust in our own wisdom, trust in our fear of man, trust in our ability to manipulate things in such a way that we can have God and the world at the same thing. That we can claim to be Christians and live worldling lives that will, that will prophylact our sex, that will cremate our bodies, that we will fit in, that we will allow the world to press us into its own mold in Romans, that's what it says, while claiming to be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to God. Your best life now. Okay? And every one of those decisions, what you're doing is you're making a decision that the truth lies in the direction of what will amount to the greatest good for the greatest number of people. You are following what the businessman calls the cost-benefit analysis, what the philosopher calls utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is the philosophy that you know what is right because what is right is what brings the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest number of people. Now, let's look at a couple places in Scripture and ask if this is what God shows us. Let's look at the issue of Samuel telling Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. Okay? You remember this. The Amalekites would not allow the Israelites to go past them. When they came out of Egypt... The Amalekites said, no, you may not pass. They said, don't worry, we won't hurt your land, we won't do anything to you, but just let us pass. The Amalekites said, no. So years later, God's prophet Samuel came to Saul the king, and he said to him, I want you to go and punish them for what they did. And here's the punishment, wipe them out. And we have no question this is what God said, because the records of Scripture are clear. So here's the story. It's found in 1 Samuel 15.1, and I want to read the whole thing because I think this story is a perfect example of you and me, how we do and don't obey God, all right? So let's go through it. 1 Samuel 15.1, Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Y'all got it? Who said to do this? Who was it? 
Who was it? Come on, say it. It was God. You don't like it, right? It was God. Then Saul, the king, summoned the people and numbered them in Telium. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, so this is a group living among the Amalekites, Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. And so the Kenites <laughs> departed from among the Amalekites. And so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were not willing to destroy them utterly but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. <laughs> now, any of you going to join me in copying to this? I mean, this is like feeling sort of like, yikes, I see myself here. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord! I have carried out the command of the Lord! But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen which I hear. Saul said, they have brought them. Notice, I always love to notice the pronoun. You know. Yeah, we, they, they. He's channeling Aaron here, okay? He's channeling Adam here, the woman that thou dost give me. <laughs> but Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. And then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, 
I did. I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Okay, guys, come on. We all know what's going on here. Now, is it true that that was their motivation? We know it's not true because of a word in the previous text. What's the word? It says they were not willing. Okay? Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is us. This is, this is the conservative church in America today. We're perpetually telling God that we have the same goal he has, but we have a little bit different way of getting there. This is what was said by Christianity Today when they started neutering the Bible from its pronouns and its words. Christianity Today did this, you know, they waited until it was time for somebody to be a mediator. And, and that's the role Christianity Today loves. And so they put up this big article about how we know that God spoke, speaking of men and brothers and fathers, but we're evangelistic. And if we're going to communicate with the world today, we have to use a different kind of language. But it's all for the gospel. And this is what the church is perpetually doing. We have to have women leaders, women authorities, because of the gospel. We have to change scripture because of the gospel. And this is precisely what Saul was doing. Yeah, it's not the gospel per se, but what do you think the sacrifices meant? It pointed to Jesus. And so for the sake of the gospel, he needed to hold back the best, you know. And what is our best? Well, our best isn't so much money today as it is our reputation and the ease with which we can live with our relatives at family reunions. That's, that's the treasure we want to protect. And listen, who... <laughs> I have all these songs that go... I have all these songs that are always in my brain, you know. Come on. Come on. Who loves you? Who loves you? Who is it who loves you? It's not your mama. It's God. It's God who loves you. It's God who picked you up from the ground when you were naked in your blood. And he washed you. And then... As you got a little older, he spread his skirt over you. And he said, be clean. 
Your mother only pointed you to the motherhood of God. We cannot give up our heavenly father for the sake of our earthly mother. We can't do it. Because who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? I'll tell you who I love. I love Jesus. And I, I don't feel it. You know? You know, anytime somebody says, do you love Jesus? And, you know, men always, when that question is asked, we're just like, uh, well, <laughs> oh, of course, yes, I do. But we don't have the kind of feelings for Jesus that we have for our wife and our children. You know, you don't want to just go up and hug and envelop Jesus. Partly because he's scary. Partly because he's a man. But who loves you? And everybody here is going to say, I was naked in my own blood. And he reached down in and he pulled me out and he set my feet on a high rock. And ever since then, I live for him. Every single one of us will say that. And so then I ask you, who do you love? Who do you love? And you love Jesus. Every single one of you loves Jesus. You love Jesus. Nobody else could help you. No one. And right at that moment, when you were his enemy dead in your trespasses and sins, he picked you up. And he washed you. Why would we be ashamed of him? Why would we try to fit in with the world? Why would we pretend to be dead in our trespasses and sin when he has made us alive? Living by faith is simply showing that we love Jesus. That's all it is. And when we live by faith, we stop making pragmatic decisions. And we begin to say to our master, command what you will. And then give me obedience to your commands. You see how unilateral that is? You command what you want, and then you give me the obedience to do what you want. In other words, after we recognize we love him, then we tell him, okay, command me. And then we say to him, okay, now make me do what you just commanded. I mean, it's just unconditional surrender. There are no terms of this surrender. And there is no place for utilitarianism. There is no place for, for pragmatism. There is no place for the cost-benefit analysis when it comes to our lives under Jesus Christ. We may not make decisions on what we think is going to work out best. Do you understand this? Now, why? Why? 
Well, number one, because when you're making decisions in a pragmatic way, you're assuming truth is relative. It's not relative, it's absolute. Okay? Truth is not um, fungible. You know, truth is not able to be manipulated. You know, there isn't actually your truth and my truth. God is ever the same, and truth comes from the character of God. Okay? That's the first reason. Truth is not relative. Okay? There are a couple of other reasons why we don't do this. Truth isn't relative, number one. Number two, Scripture is God's truth. And when we begin to make decisions as if truth is relative, we are denying Scripture's own witness about itself that it is true. In John chapter 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them, which means make them holy, in the truth. And then it says, Thy word is truth. Okay? Number one, truth isn't relative. Number two, Scripture is true. Okay? There are many testimonies in Scripture of the truth of Scripture. You say, well, that's self... What's the term? Self-verifying... That's not the word. You know, it's a circular construction. It's nonsense. But not if God's speaking. That's one of the things some of you people don't get. You think that God's wisdom has to conform to your stupid brain. And you're, what is the Bible saying? As far as heavens are above the earth, so far is God's way than our way, his thoughts than our thoughts. What that says is you have a stupid brain. Okay? You actually are not smart. It's just relative to your husband. You're smart. <laughs> but, I mean, how difficult is that? Okay. Okay, I'm back. Okay, number three. The problem with pragmatism is that you're trusting yourself too much. And this is one of the things that drives me craziest about the church today. The celebrity leaders of the church today never, ever say, I was wrong. Because they believe that the health of the church depends upon them always being right. And so if they ever admit they were wrong, all the witness that they've been, their whole lives will just go crash and bang. And so they never say I was wrong. There are so many cases I could tell you about specifically that are working their way out in public right now. You know, I sent something to Stephen. I mean, you know, people you know. You know, and they absolutely will not say I was wrong. Why? Well, because they don't actually believe in the limitations of their own hearts and minds. And they think that God's faithfulness and wisdom depends upon them being inerrant. Right? And so, for instance... The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Now, does that apply to my heart? Yes. Ask Mary Lee. Ask any of my grandchildren or my children. Yes, it applies to me. Does it apply to you? 
that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, it's so wicked, you can't even know the limitations of its wickedness. It's deviance. Yes, women and men. If that's true, how on earth do you think that you can come to a pragmatic decision and not have that decision corrupted by the wickedness of your heart? That you don't even know your own motives. That you act as if you're obeying God because the consequences of doing the other thing are so horrific that you have to fool yourself. I can't tell you how many appointments my wife and I have been counseling somebody. And we leave, and I go, and I look at her, and I said, did you hear what I heard? She says, yeah, I heard what you heard. I said, does, does he really believe that? And Mary Lee always says, yes. I say, oh, no, 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 no can't really believe that, you know? And she says, oh yeah, he's fooled himself for years, and now he's completely deluded. D-E-L-U-D, not D-I-L-U-T, although they tend to go together. Pragmatists trust themselves, their own judgment, their own mind, and their own motives way too much. Fourth, the cost-benefit calculations of the pragmatists can never take into account infinite values. Okay? Do you understand this? If you're making a cost-benefit analysis, you have to be able to assign a value to the various consequences. You have to be able to do an accurate summary of the consequences of an action. And so, how does the pragmatist handle Jesus saying this? Are you ready for this? Jesus says, if your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. <laughs> you know, how is a pragmatist going to handle that command of Jesus? In what world is it good to tear off your right hand? But Jesus goes on and says, For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Do you see the problem here? Pragmatism does not allow for hell or heaven. It does not allow for life after this life. Right? And the fifth error is closely related to the fourth. Pragmatism always says no to discipline, to pain, and to suffering. Because in its very limited vision, it can never see the positive fruit of those things. It cannot allow suffering to produce any good worth keeping track of, okay? And this is the reason why there's such a movement towards physician-assisted suicide today. If you suffer then it's okay to break the sixth commandment because, after all, you're suffering. And so you break this commandment when suffering. Well, what's the commandment against suffering? There is no commandment against suffering. Even the doctors, it's not to say that you, you're, you're to end all suffering. The first rule of the doctor is do no harm. And so you look at pragmatism and you ask yourself, what is going on that we today have given ourselves so much to this?
And I believe that today we are much like Israel at the time of the prophetesses. Where it says in Judges 21, 35, or 25, but also in a number of other places in Judges, it says, this is the refrain of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In Proverbs 14, 11, and 12, it says, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And then do any of you know what comes next? Does he have it up on the screen? Ha! There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Okay, now listen to me. Do you think I think I'm better than you are? Huh? Have I led you to believe that pragmatism does not seduce me? I understand how difficult it is for us to trust God. And so, will you please examine your expectation of God showing you the path that you should take. At the end of my dad's life, he'd spent his whole life going on campuses and speaking, conferences, campuses. And when he'd go out, often he'd have sessions like we're going to have in Sunday school where people would ask questions, and he'd answer the questions. And far and away, the most frequently asked question was, how do you know the will of God? And so my dad spent his career with InterVarsity answering the question, how do you know the will of God? I just got a request a couple weeks ago from a leader asking me to find my dad's writing on knowing the will of God, because he wants it. And so our, our wonderful volunteers and Katie are, are, are reading through, trying to find it and scan it. But at the end of his life, my father, and this is what I'm going to tell this man when I send him the material. At the end of his life, my father said that if he had it to do over, and you want to listen carefully when somebody older says what they would do different if they have it to do over, right? And he said if he had it to do over, he would never, ever speak about knowing the will of God. And so, you know, my dad, he could be cryptic. And so I looked at dad and I said, what? Why? And my dad, you you haven't met him. Well, you have. But only, yeah. But my dad had this way, and he'd go like this. He'd go. And what that meant was, what that always meant was, He didn't say anything, but what he was saying was, if you have ears, you'll hear. That's what that always meant. He would not lower himself to say any words when you asked him a stupid question. But dad, why wouldn't you speak on it? And so being, you know me, 
I wasn't willing to take silence and a shrug for an answer, you know. I said, come on, Dad, why? And then he said this. He said, if you want to know the will of God, you'll know it. Did you all hear me? He said, if you want to know the will of God, you'll know it. And listen, I have found that so true in my life. My problem is not that I don't know the will of God. My problem is, you know, Bob Kapowitz gives me a calendar every year. You know? And the entire calendar, every month, has pictures of jackasses. (laughs) And he's asleep, so he doesn't hear what I'm saying, but (laughs) now he's smiling, you know. And he just loves to give me a calendar of big pictures of jackasses. And what are jackasses like? Well, they're mulish. And what is mulish? It's stubborn. I will know the will of God, but I will be a mule, and I will not do it. And that's wrong, because he loves us. Who are you going to love? Now tell me, who do you love? And listen, we have to love Jesus, because we're stupid, we're conniving, we have the word of God, Because he does the one that loves us. He's not the one that's manipulating us. He's put it down in his word. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, so much so we can't even know our own hearts. And so, who do you love? And so if you love him, then don't trust in your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Just like, are you ready? Come on, you know what I'm going to say? Just like Ben and Megan. Their paths were straight until they were 35 years old. Or however old. And they met it just the right time because they were trusting God. They were not leaning on their own understanding in all the ways they were acknowledging him and he made their paths straight. So don't miss the lesson God's given us all this weekend. Okay? Okay. Should we be done? Let's be done. If we can sing now, please.